So back in Deuteronomy 17, again, look back there, the Lord preemptively details five specific standards for a chosen king. Look at these quickly in verse 15. The first standard is, he shall be one from among your countrymen. So the king must be a man of the people, literally. He cannot be an outsider. He's got to be an Israelite. Now, based on our current law, the man who would be president of the United States must be a natural-born citizen of the United States. Although attempts to introduce legislation allowing foreign-born citizens to be eligible as well has come along so that someday we might see President Schwarzenegger. (laughs) But the king of Israel must be an Israelite. He must be of the people of Israel. And then the Lord goes on to give three prohibitions. In this list of five, the first is a positive. He must be a man of the people, Israel. The second one, he must not be a man of the world. Look at verse 16. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He must not be a man of the world. Egypt, in the Bible, we've said over and over, is a type of the world. Egypt is a picture of worldliness. And horses, by the way, horses in Scripture are often a picture of power, authority, strength, and might. And he says, this man, this king, must not go back to Egypt to get horses. So he can't get horses? That's not the point. The point is the picture. He must not be a man of the world, not all about power. What does God do with the power of man? Exodus 15, verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he has highly exalted the horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. That's what God thinks of the power of the horses of Egypt. The power of the world. God told Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So the king must not be a man of the world focused on power. Secondly, or thirdly on our list of five, the king must not be a man of many women. Whoops! It tells us, this shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, verse 18. Oh wait, I'm, I got ahead of myself. Verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. Um, okay. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3 tells us Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. I did the math. That means for two years straight he wouldn't even have to see the same woman. If he picked a different woman every day. That's amazing. Actually, it'd be longer than that, wouldn't it? 300, 700, so... Yeah, no, that's right around two years or so. A little more than that. He could just have a different woman every single day. And people read that and they go, Oh, well, Jesus in the New Testament says it's one man and one woman forever, and that's the way it's always been. But we see Solomon in the Old Testament, so obviously the Bible is contradictory. Obviously, Solomon was a sinner. Because God made it very clear when a king sits on the throne, he is not to have many wives. David had many wives. Well, what's the problem with many wives anyway, especially back in that culture? Not a big deal, isn't it? Or is it? Well, the Lord says, he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. They will sway him. I have one wife. It's amazing how she can sway me. Is that line from uh, my big fat Greek wedding? The man, he is the head of the household, but the woman, she is the neck, and she can turn the head any way she wants. One wife. Many wives? Get out of town. No way. 
he must not be a man of many women. By the way, when it quotes Solomon's wives and princesses and concubines, it says this line as well. And his wives turned his heart away. Which is exactly word for word what God said would happen if the king multiplied many wives. And so, the king was not to be a man of power. He was not to be a man of women. And number four, the king must not be a man of wealth. It tells us at the end of verse 17, nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold for himself. Man of the people. Not a man of the world. Not a man of women. Not a man of wealth. And think about what drives our culture today. Power, sex, and money. These three things that God said should not be in the heart of a leader, what do we see in the halls of Congress? What do we see in the power brokers of America? Power, sex, and money. Those three things tend to drive everything. So what is the one thing a king would need to avoid these pitfalls? This Israelite king who shouldn't multiply women and not be a man of the world and certainly not be a man who who amasses great wealth. Number five in our list, the king must be a man of the word. Listen to this. It shall come about, verse 18, and this is the first thing on inauguration day that a king of Israel was required to do. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. That was the first order of business. Sit down, get some papyrus, and start writing, buddy. Now, some have said it's the book of Deuteronomy. I think the indication is it's the entire Torah. That the king was to sit down from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to Deuteronomy chapter 34, at the end of the chapter, he was to write out the whole thing. And then, after writing it out for himself, in the presence of the Levites, It tells us that it shall be with him, verse 19, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. Where was Saul? Well, he's heads and shoulders above his countrymen, not just physically, spiritually, his heart was. That his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. And if you want to prolong your days in your little kingdom, in your little world, where you have smaller authority, gang, I would submit to you that you'll write the word, word for word. Write it out. Ever thought about doing that? Man, I tried reading the Bible through in a year and I couldn't get through it. I got about halfway into Leviticus and all the, you know, the omissions and things. That was it for me. I was done. Write it out. Be amazed. Write it word for word. And once you've done that, or even if you haven't written it word for word, if you're at least studying it word for word, which is what we're attempting to do, studying it through word for word, the second thing is carry the word that it may be heard. Take it with you. I love seeing the Bibles that are completely thrashed, that are almost unreadable, because they've got all your little finger stains and your markings and, and everything. Take it with you. Carry it. The king was told to write it and carry it. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Not a single day was the king to go without reading the word of God. Don't keep the word at bay. Keep the word at hand. 
God declares that effective leadership, regardless of the size of your kingdom, depends on this, being a man or a woman of the word. Now, Moses goes back to the priest for just a moment. In chapter 18, verse 1, and don't worry, we'll move quickly about the last half of this chapter we're going to deal with on Sunday morning. The Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire and his portion. They shall have no inheritance among their countrymen, as the Lord is their inheritance. I think that's wonderful. And as he promised them. Verse 3, now this shall be the priests due from the people, from those who offer a sacrifice. Excuse me either an ox or a sheep, of which they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. And you shall give him the first fruits of your grain and your new wine and your oil and the first shearing of your sheep. You give this to the Levites. Verse 5, For the Lord your God has chosen him and his sons from all your tribes to stand and to serve in the name of the Lord forever. Verse 6, Now if a Levite comes from any of your towns throughout Israel, where he resides, and comes wherever he desires to the place which the Lord chooses, then he shall serve in the name of the Lord his God, like all his fellow Levites who stand there before the Lord, and they shall eat equal portions except what they receive from the sale of their fathers. Estates, simple principle gang, those who gave spiritual food and care to the people were to receive physical food and care from the people. In verses 7 and 8, it's interesting, this little caveat here, if, if, a, if a Levite, and this is what this is about, if he is serving in one of the many towns, and they were scattered all throughout Israel, and so they'd be serving in these towns, and, and what they would do is, for, I believe it was uh, two weeks, they would go down to Jerusalem, two weeks in a year, and they would serve in the temple 24-7. And then they would go back and, and serve in their little towns. But each of the Levites were involved in temple service, and they would go two weeks for their two weeks a year, or they were on, maybe it wasn't even a year, a rotating basis to where when it was their time to go, they went down to Jerusalem, two weeks of work, you know, kind of like army reserves, they were Levite reserves, and they would go down and they would work there in the temple. But if a priest got down there, and then his heart just got hooked, he loved being there in Jerusalem, serving in the temple, he didn't want to go back home, he just wanted to stay right there then God said, you can sell your land, your property holdings, your father's land, you sell that. And you can keep it. And then go serve in the temple and be cared for there. So you can take your retirement with you, which I think is a, a, a good thing there. But these are rules for a priest. Just basic rules for a priest, how to serve, and that the priest is to be taken care of by the people. The calling of the king we looked at, and finally now, number three in our in our little outline here, the coming, the coming of a prophet. This is awesome. Watch this, verse 9. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. That would be Molech worship. One who uses divination. One who practices witchcraft. Those of you who have seen Harry Potter, you know that's the theme song. One who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out from before you 
Verse 13, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. And I just want to ask one question as we read this. Recognizing this is Old Covenant, Old Testament law, has God changed his mind about these things? Are these things today any less detestable to God because we are now under a different covenant, the new covenant? I submit that it's detestable to God then, it's detestable to God now, and that hasn't changed even if we have fun holidays that celebrate it. It's still detestable to the Lord. It's sin, it's demonic, and it is of the devil. And as we approach Halloween next month, this is an incredible applicable passage where God says avoid these things Rick are you going to take your kids trick or treating Corey and Hannah don't like to anymore they're too old let's roll on Isaiah chapter 9 (laughs) verse 18 I do have three like I said let's roll on the bottom line here gang is avoid the evil my kids go trick or treating basically because I love candy and there is a huge dad tax in our house and that's the way that works and I see nothing harmful about that personally and I'm willing to have conversation about that however I'll tell you what my kids don't do they don't dress evil they don't dress evil (laughs) Isaiah chapter 8 verse 19 a favorite passage of mine it says when they say to you consult the mediums and the spiritists and the 1-800 numbers and the psychic friends network I added those. Consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. God says, should they not? Should the people not consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? And he says, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. And then they will look down to the earth and listen to this. Behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be driven away into darkness. So serious is God about the practice of these things and the function of witchcraft and divination and spiritism. So serious is the Lord about this kind of activity that through Isaiah he prophesies the very end of those who engage in such things. What do you mean? I'm talking about the tribulation. Listen again to Isaiah's description of what will happen to them. Distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Joel chapter 2 verse 2 tells us it's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Amos the prophet, chapter 5 verse 18, he says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not night. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him or goes home and leans his hand against a wall and a snake bites him, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is also called in the scriptures the time of Jacob's distress or Jacob's trouble. Why Jacob's trouble? Because Israel's going to be around in that day and he's going to go through it. But Isaiah declares, and Joel declares, and Amos declares that those who would choose darkness, spiritism and psychics and witchcraft and divination and all these things, those who would choose it or even mess with it 
dabble in it and it's so dangerous to dabble by the way if you have kids teenagers don't even let them dabble don't even own a Ouija board we were talking about the other day don't even mess with that stuff because for those who go that direction who choose to go into the dark arts so called they will be driven away into darkness and hell in the Bible is not just described as a lake of fire it's also described as the outer darkness a place of absolute darkness why such intense feelings against these things because these things gang are counterfeit to what God is now going to declare they are counterfeit going to even a palm reader there's a nice one downtown Anacortes now you can pop in and get your palm read if you'd like to just going to a palm reader to find out what the future holds for you it is counterfeit to what God has given and what God has given is prophecy God has spoken to us the future that we might know it He's brought it to us we have a handle on it we can know what's coming around the bend if you want to know the future Isaiah says should not a people consult their God why would you go to someone who's going to read the cracks in your hand which are getting easier and easier to read the older I get why would you go somewhere like that when you can consult the Lord of the living if you want to know the future ask God and notice Moses' description of the coming prophet verse 15 the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your countrymen you shall listen to him this is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly this was at Mount Sinai the law was being given God spoke first the Ten Commandments the people heard it as they sat around the mountain as they, as they were down there and it scared the living daylights out of them they were so freaked out that when Moses turned around to them they said no more no more tell God to talk to you but not to us you go get them go up but leave us here don't talk don't let him talk to us anymore he's going to kill us and so Moses reminds him remember when he said that yeah I remember that let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die verse 17 Moses says the Lord said to me they've spoken well <laughs> they're right they would die I will raise up now he says a prophet from among their countrymen in other words an Israelite a prophet like you Moses and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him and it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name I myself will require it of him in other words you can listen to this prophet and follow him or I will require you to live by the standard of this law your choice grace or law you want to listen to the prophet who is like Moses who is this this coming prophet greater than Moses a prophet who would speak the words of the father perfectly that prophet you know who we're talking about it is Jesus Christ I didn't always know that I was a young youth pastor and a girl in my youth group a girl by the name of Aisha was being lured into nation of Islam the nation of Islam not, not Islam uh, proper not, not um, Islam as we are seeing it today but the nation of Islam which is kind of an offshoot a sect still believing in Allah and the Quran and, and, and all the teachings but it's a, kind of a different sect of it and she was in my youth group and, and we were talking and, and she brought up this passage and I was very unlearned in the Old Testament in those days 
And she brought it up and she said, This prophet, who is this prophet? It's Muhammad. It's the prophet Muhammad. Mormons would say, It's Joseph Smith. They will go directly here. The prophet among them like Moses. Jesus, in Matthew 16, verse 13, in the district of Caesarea Philippi, was talking with his disciples and he asked this question. He said, Who do people say that I am? What do people say about the Son of Man? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, <laughs> who had been beheaded. Some think resurrected, he's back, and now Jesus. Others said, Elijah. Still others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Again, Muslim people would say the prophet like Moses is Muhammad. Mormons say Joseph Smith. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, that God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He also made the world. And He, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. Jesus is the prophet, the perfect prophet, the final word. There is no other. In fact, as we've been looking at tonight, Jesus is not only the prophet, but he's the priest and the king. He's all three, prophet and priest and king. You've probably heard that before. Maybe you didn't know that according to Old Testament law, a priest could be a prophet, but he could not be a king. No such thing as a priest-king, except for Melchizedek, but that was before law, and outside of law, a totally interesting, different topic. A priest could be a prophet, but he could not be a king. A king could be a prophet. David was. But he could not be a priest. A prophet could be a king or a priest, but could not be both simultaneously. The only person in the history of Israel ever to be prophet and priest and king is Jesus Christ. It's the only one who can handle it. Now verse 20 tells us, When the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or when he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. There's a lot of talk today about the prophetic. And well, there should be. Because we are told biblically that in the last days, our sons and daughters will prophesy. We should in the church be aware of prophecy. We should be listening and discerning prophecy. We should be seeing the gift of prophecy poured out among us in these days. It's interesting that um, in these days of the prophetic, there are several things that apply. Several churches are afraid of the prophetic. Even that word causes a drawing back home. Are you one of those churches? You know that prophetic stuff? You know that? I bet you got some people who speak in tongues. You know what? I use my tongue every time I speak. It's amazing. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Do not quench the Spirit. That's Bible. Don't do it. Do not despise prophetic utterances. It's the Greek word propheteia. Don't be afraid of it. Don't quench the spirit. Don't draw back from that which is prophetic that's been given by God. However, he says, hold, uh, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. 
Here's a standard for you. Don't be afraid of the prophetic. Test it. Don't draw back from it in fear it. Discern it. Hold fast to what is good. Reject what is evil. Now, Moses gives a couple of guidelines regarding whether a prophet is true or false. Two specific guidelines here. We're almost done. He says, basically, if a prophet speaks in the name of another god, guideline number one, if a prophet speaks in the name of any other god other than Jesus Christ, other than Jehovah God, and what he says comes true, don't listen to him. Even if what he prophesies, even if Nostradamus was right, 180th of the time don't listen to him if he is not speaking in the name of Jesus Christ or for Jesus Christ or about Jesus Christ and he presents himself as a prophet and even if he nails it you don't listen to him that's standard number one very simple if he doesn't speak in my name don't listen that's Deuteronomy chapter 13 verses 1 through 3 but the second standard Deuteronomy 18 verse 21 he says you shall say in your heart how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken how do we know if it's not from you Lord and he says when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord now this is someone speaking for God claiming to be a prophet of God we see it in the church someone claiming to be speaking for Jesus if the thing does not come about or come true that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken the prophet has spoken it presumptuously and you shall not be afraid of him literally you shall not hold him in esteem or awe you don't listen to him so if he's not of the Lord first case scenario that prophesies and it comes true you don't listen to him if he is saying he is of the Lord then the test is whether or not what he says comes true now listen because this is important there is a difference between Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets there is a difference between the type of prophesying which went on in the Old Testament and the gift of prophecy that Paul talks about in the New Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 the gifts of the spirit and the propheteia that Paul says we are not to despise different kind of prophecy than Old Testament Hebrew prophecy how so? listen and this is very important far too many far too many Christian so-called prophets are claiming Old Testament anointing in a new covenant age the last of the Old Testament prophets gang was John the Baptist and after him came the advent of Jesus and with Jesus we entered into the age of the new covenant and no longer do we need the prophets of the old there are Christian so called prophets out there who are claiming an anointing and claiming to be able to speak like Old Testament prophets instead of prophesy like New Testament prophets well okay Rick you're saying there's a difference what's the difference let me give you just a couple of things here Number one, Old Covenant prophets brought condemnation. Old Covenant prophets brought condemnation. They railed on the people. We'll get to some of those prophecies and it's pretty harsh stuff. New Covenant prophets bring exhortation. Completely different. The prophet who is judging and pointing the finger and condemning and bringing a heaviness on you, that's not of the Lord. Now, exhortation, that's of the Lord. It may make you uncomfortable, but exhortation is to positively move you forward in the Lord with encouragement, not with condemnation. 
for now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet the Old Covenant prophets often brought condemnation to the people of Israel. New Covenant prophets bring exhortation. Old Covenant prophets brought the communication of God's Word. We have it. The last, probably at least half of the what we call the Old Testament, of the Jewish Scriptures are God's words brought through the prophets. And so the Old Covenant prophets brought communication of God's word. Listen to this. New Covenant prophets bring confirmation of what God has already said. Chuck Smith, uh, in his book Charismania, Charisma versus Charismania, made a comment. He said, if someone comes up to me and says, hey, I have a word from the Lord for you, and they share it with me, and it's not something I've already heard from the Lord, I take it and I put it on the shelf. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. But I don't accept it as a word from the Lord because New Testament prophecy confirms what the Lord has already told you or will tell you. It's a confirmation. It is not a new communication. A couple more things. Old Covenant prophets spoke the Word of God. New Covenant prophets point people to the Word of God. A New Covenant prophet, someone who has the gift of prophecy today is going to point you right here is going to speak to align you to the Word. Not to give you new words. Fresh words. Different words. Additional words. Adding to or taking away from this Word, that is not the gift of prophecy from the Lord Jesus Christ. But the gift of prophecy from the Lord Jesus Christ will always drive you to the Word. Which, by the way, gives me an incredible sense of security. Knowing that what is spoken prophetically can always be tested biblically. No, no doubt about it. So you don't have to fear it. If you have a, a church tradition that goes back to a place that never had anything so-called charismatic about it as I grew up in, and this stuff kind of rattles you a little bit, hey, you got the word. You test everything. Got it right there in front of you. Last one. Old covenant prophets heard from the Lord themselves and told the people. New covenant prophets teach others to hear from the Lord themselves. It is not my place, gang, and I'm not presenting myself as a prophet among us, but it is not my place to tell you what the Lord is saying outside of sharing with you what the Word is saying. It is my place to encourage you to listen to Jesus yourself. A name that is very big right now in prophetic circles, Graham Cook, has a book out, a fascinating book, by the way, called Discovering Your Prophetic Gifting. And I'm moving through it and studying it and and trying to understand it and see what he has to say about some things. He has a whole section where he's talking about the difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant prophets. And you know what? He is dead on he nails it which makes me more comfortable with him as a prophetically gifted person but I'll tell you what he said and I want you to flip real quick in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 we're going to stop there tonight 2 Corinthians 2 thank you for hanging in there doing great while you're turning over there I'll tell you what Graham said and I read this and I just out loud in my office all by myself at home said hallelujah I did. Reggie looked up, my little dog. Did you say, I'm going to feed you? No, I said, hallelujah. Different thing. Cook said, you don't need a prophet. You need Jesus. 
You don't need a prophet. You need Jesus. And if there are any prophets among us or any prophetic gifting among us, they will always point us to Jesus and point us to His Word. Always. And that's how you test it and that's how you know. But Paul, in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 2, says the following. That's not right. It is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Go back over there. Yes, good. Verse 14. 1 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. This, by the way, I think answers so many questions. we We could stay another hour and just talk about these three verses here. Because it is so clear and it helps us understand so much about why why we get in relationships and people don't understand this. Non-Christian people who are friends or family just don't get what you're about. Listen to what Paul says. He says, A natural man, verse 14, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. And he can't understand them because they are, ex- they are spiritually appraised. I'll explain that in just a second. Verse 15, But he who is spiritual appraises all things. Yet he himself is appraised by no one. What am I, a house here? I'm now having an appraisal done? Listen, this word appraised is anakrino in the Greek. Anakrino. And it literally means examine or scrutinize. Read it in that context with that translation. A natural man does not accept the things of the, spiritual, uh, of, the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually scrutinized. They're spiritually examined. To look at God and understand His Spirit has to be done spiritually, not naturally. The things of God don't make natural sense. Which is why the church often looks so strange to the world. I don't get those people. And when you weren't a Christian, you looked at Christians and you said, I don't get those people. Sometimes even as a Christian, I don't get those people. And it's because I'm functioning in my flesh. But he says, he who is spiritual examines all things. Scrutinizes all things. Through what? Through the filter of the Spirit. We have a filter. We have a way to understand that is spiritually given here. And then it says this wonderful phrase, yet he himself is appraised by no one. That means scrutinized or examined by no one. Why? Because no one outside of the body of faith, no unspiritual or natural person has any idea what's really going on inside me. And so that kind of shuts down the whole idea of judgment outside of the church, doesn't it? Someone is judging you, they don't get you. They're not spiritually appraising you, therefore you are not being judged. Truly, you're not, they're not scrutinizing you. They can't. They don't understand. But watch this, verse 16. One of the most powerful voice, uh, scriptures in all of the Bible. Who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct him? Who, who in the world could possibly know the mind of the Lord? And Paul says, I'll tell you who. You do. But we have the mind of Christ. We have, as the gift of the Holy Spirit in us, the mind of Jesus Christ, the perfect prophet. And so we need no others. So why does God give us prophets in the New Covenant age? To point us back to the perfect prophet. People who are given voice to say, go to Jesus, run to his word. Like the king, write the word, carry it with you. Go to the priest, the high priest, Jesus Christ. 
the perfect prophet. For Revelation 19 verse 10 tells us the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And Lord, we praise you for this. And we thank you. And we are overwhelmed even by the thought that we might have the mind of Christ among us. What's wonderful, Lord, is spiritually appraising this very thought humbles us and does not puff us up. In fact, the thought of the mind of Christ being given, your very spirit, Lord Jesus, indwelling us, should drive us to our knees. What an awesome gift. And Lord, I pray that you'll teach us to listen to the great prophet Jesus. I pray that you will give us ears truly to hear, to listen to your voice. Not only, Father, the written word of the scripture that we have, but the rhema, that spoken word, that we might hear you confirmed by the written word and know you and and know how to walk. As you said that we would hear a voice behind us when we choose to, when we're going to walk to the right or to the left, we'd hear a voice behind us saying, this is the way, and walk in it. Give us ears to hear, Father. And thank you so much for blessing us with the presence of the great prophet, the priest, the King, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And it is in his name that we pray and we praise. Amen. Now Sunday, we're going to uh, go back to verses 15 through 22. And we're going to spend some time on understanding biblical prophecy. And I am freaking out. I'm very excited. I'm very pumped up about it. Prophecy is so critical in these days in which we live. In the, as, as Missler calls it, the times of the signs. And so that'll be Sunday. We'll go back and, and kind of re- review that a bit. And we are cruising. We are um, past the halfway mark in the last book of the Torah and approaching that milestone mid-November, Lord willing. Although if he wants to take us home before we finish, that's fine with me too. God bless you all. And have a great week.